Well, today we return to our sermon series on the book of Isaiah, and the series is titled Isaiah, Salvation Belongs to the Lord. Now, think about it. What comes to mind when you hear the word salvation? Most tend to think in religious terms as God offering salvation from sin and death through his son, Jesus Christ. I'm not saying salvation isn't that. But listen, especially if you're young here today, please understand this. All of life is a constant day-by-day, minute-by-minute quest to experience salvation. Think about it. The dictionary definition of salvation is this. Salvation is the preservation from or deliverance from difficulty, danger, harm, destruction, ruin, or loss. And so, so think about it. I don't know where that came from. Every minute of every day is a quest either for continued preservation from harm or ruin or deliverance from harm or ruin. Young people, if you happen to have a good reputation with your classmates, the last thing you want is to become unpopular, to be the subject of gossip, right? Salvation is the word for the preservation from harm that you desire. Or perhaps you struggle with anxiety. You're having a good day, but an anxiety attack is just one unexpected turn from the wor- for the worse away. My friend, salvation is the word for the deliverance you desire. You might not have really ever thought about it this way, but it's true. All of life is a constant day-by-day, minute-by-minute quest to experience salvation. Now, the overarching message of the book of salvation is Salvation belongs to the Lord. Or to put it another way, the salvation that your heart longs for, only God can provide. Now the problem we have as human beings is we flat out refuse to draw near so that God can save us. By the way, that's what's going on in Ahaz's life, his attitude that we're going to read in this passage. It's true, right? We're born prideful, self-sufficient, And we certainly don't want to admit that we need any help from God. Add to this that we also realize that to allow God to save us means that he gets to have his way with us. And we just don't want that. Remember in our last passage where Isaiah, remember he was brought into God's very glorious presence and he was undone, right? Woe is me. And he cried out for salvation. And then God sent the angel, the seraphim, with a hot coal to forgive him and cleanse Isaiah. Salvation came to Isaiah. And remember, what was the posture that that put Isaiah in? It was a posture of devotion and service to God. Isaiah said what? Here am I, send me. That, my friends, is Christianity. Here am I, send me. And yet human nature doesn't want to become debtors to God's grace. So we avoid God so that our lifestyles need not change. Now, others say they do want God in their lives, but only as a helper so they can achieve their goals in life. This is God as Santa Claus, and many Christians tend to live this way. So our predicament presents a quandary. We need God's salvation, 
but we don't want God, at least not that close and personal. This was King Ahaz's situation in our text. Ahaz's story is a story of failure to trust in God. And from Ahaz's failure, we learn a lot about God and about ourselves. Isaiah shows us that God is able to triumph over our failures by his grace. And so in our passage, God proclaims that he is, listen, our great and glorious ally. And because he is our great and glorious ally, we are to entrust our lives to God. Those, we have three main points we're going to see this morning. Because God is our great and glorious ally, one, we must steady ourselves upon him. Two, we must take his help seriously. And three, we must seek refreshment of our souls in him. First main point, because God is our great and glorious ally, we must steady ourselves upon him. I'm going to read the first section of our text. It's Isaiah 7, verses 1 through 9. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shir Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. Now thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within 65 years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this word to us. In so many ways, it's kind of foreign. There's people's names and places and events that happened so long ago. And yet, as we, as, as we uncover the meanings, it, it, it is beautiful. And it really is a help for us today. May that be true in this hour by the work of your spirit in us. Amen. So the first point is because God is our great and glorious ally, we must steady ourselves upon him. Do you remember back in high school when you learned the difference between kinetic energy and potential energy? For instance, if you were lay, to lay on the ground 
here and I were to climb up on a ladder and drop a bowling ball on your belly, you would experience what? Kinetic energy, right? There's great power in that ball when it hits you. Now, potential energy is simply when I hold the, the bowling ball high above you. There is great potential in the energy that is stored there. Now, why do I bring this up? Think about it. Because every day of, of your life, trauma, crises, calamity exists, either in kinetic or potential form, right? Life is either crisis present or crisis possible. The question Isaiah presents us is this. When crisis comes, will you steady yourself upon the Lord or will you reject him? What is happening in our passage? Well, I want you to, you can read in your own spare time, 2 Kings chapter 16, all of these events in greater detail. But let me summarize. Isaiah is the king of Judah. Remember the southern kingdom. The two kingdoms split, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And the northern kingdom, Israel, which in our text is called Ephraim or Samaria. I know that's confusing. All right. Israel and Syria form an unlikely alliance. They were enemies, but now there's a new power on the map, the nation of Assyria. And Assyria's king, Tiglath-Pileser, no one ever names their kids Tiglath-Pileser, is threatening to overrun them. So Syria and Ephraim are about to attack Jerusalem. Why? So they can kill Ahaz and set up a puppet king, some son of Jabil, right? Who is that guy? We don't know but he's not from the house of David. We can be sure of that. And so Ahaz is trembling in his boots. They're right outside. They're about ready to attack. This is a crisis. It's not a problem. Problems we can fix with our own wisdom and power, right? A crisis is when things are beyond our control. So where is Ahaz? Verse 3 tells us he's outside Jerusalem at a conduit. Now what is that? Well, one of the greatest assets of Israel, Jerusalem, was that, that, was that they had this amazing aqueduct or conduit where the water flowed from outside the city from a place called Gihon, a spring called Shiloh, and it flowed into the city. What a wonderful thing to have, right? But listen, a crisis is when you find that your greatest asset has become your liability. Jerusalem was impregnable except for its vulnerable water supply. Now, notice God's grace towards Ahaz. Ahaz didn't pause and turn and run to God as kings have done before. No, he runs out to the source of his problem, and he's wringing his hands, wondering what the heck is he going to do. But notice how God goes to meet him in the midst of his crises. Verse 3, and the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shir Jashub, your son. A lot of weird names back then. At the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway. What does this tell us about God? It tells us that he will not let our failures, our failures to turn to him, keep him from coming and presenting himself to us. Ahaz fails to come to God, but God triumphs over his failure by going to him and bringing him hope and help. First, hope. Isaiah's boy's name is Shir Jashub, which in the Hebrew means a remnant shall return. 
His name is a word of reassurance to Ahaz. Yes, there's going to be a great trial, but in the end, God's plans are safe and sure. The Lord also offers hope and help when he says in verse 5, listen to his words, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of what? These two smoldering stumps of firebrands. See, Ahaz sees Syria's king and Ephraim, Israel's king, as giant foes, but God calls them two smoldering stumps. Oh, to have God's perspective when potential crisis hangs over your head like a bowling ball. Now, did you hear God's gracious words that were meant to still Ahaz's anxious mind? Do not fear and do not let your heart be faint. God triumphs over Ahaz's failure to draw near to God by drawing near to Ahaz and speaking powerful words of comfort. God is saying, I got this, Ahaz. I will be your great and glorious ally with me on your side. You need not fear, nor be faint of heart. Now, the Lord doesn't just say, now cheer up and go about your day. Everything will be okay. No, he promises to do something. He promises that he will remove the threat of Syria in the northern kingdom. In verses 7 through 9, the Lord says, it, it shall not come to pass. I will, I will take care of everything. I will fight for my people. But will Ahaz believe? Please notice God's word at the end of verse 9. If your Bibles are open, look at it there. God promise, he, he promises to be Ahaz's savior. And he ends with a call to believe, to trust. Here's what he writes. Here's what he says. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. The original Hebrew is a word play. One commentator translates it, Hold God in doubt, and you'll not hold out. In other words, if you're not firm in trusting God, then your life will lose its firmness. Listen, here's the central truth for all who live on earth, which would be you, all right? If you're not firm in dependence upon God, your life falls apart. See, when you do believe in trusting God, he changes you, right? Many of you know what I'm talking about here. Your mind becomes enlightened, you feel at ease, and you live with confidence and joy. When God is the center of your life, well, he cares for you. He reshapes you. He comforts you. And yes, he even disciplines you and drives you to deeper repentance, which causes you what? To depend more and more upon him. And you become what? Firm in body and soul. You experience God's firmness. Now, sadly, Ahaz could not bring himself to trust God's word to him. He stared at the conduit, this aqueduct that was outside of his control and would soon be his ruin. And he could not, for the life of him, let the words of God's promises point to, uh, point to him and cause him to be at ease. Listen, I know this may sound I know you came here to like be cheered up, but um, every one of us here will have at least one horrifying crisis in our lives, if not more, right? And we will find ourselves staring at the aqueduct that was, aqueduct that was once our strength and joy, and we will realize that it cannot save us. 
And we'll find ourselves fretting over how bad a failure this will be. Perhaps your aqueduct is a sharp wit. It always seems to deliver you out of trouble. But then here in your crisis, well, it actually was your sharp wit that got you into trouble. Or maybe your aqueduct is physical beauty. It's given you joy and confidence in years past. But now the waters of the fountain of youth no longer flow like before. Now, when debilitating crises come into your life, they're debilitating precisely because your great strength has now become your liability. Victory used to be in your hands, but not only failure looms. So what will you do then? God speaks to you through Isaiah, and he says, Be careful and quiet and do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. Things might not go according to your plan, but with my plan, there is power and grace to live in victory no matter your circumstances. Do you believe this? That's the first main point. Because God is our great and glorious ally, we must steady ourselves upon him. The next point is this. Because God is our great and glorious ally, we must take his help seriously. Isaiah 7, 10 through 17. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. See, God is just keeps, he won't let it go, right? He wants to bring grace to Ahaz's life. Again, the Lord said to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the days that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. First, let's look at God's offer of a sign. God wants his people to have proof of his willingness to fight for us. Look at verse 10. And again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask for a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. Try to picture Ahaz standing over that aqueduct. Isaiah is, is there, and he just told Ahaz that the Lord will be his great and glorious ally but God knows that his people often doubt. So listen, this is an act of grace towards Ahaz. God could have what? He could have demanded a sign from Ahaz. Prove to me that you're worthy of my generosity. Prove to me, Ahaz, if you're a good Christian, that you deserve the grace that I will give you. That is not how God responds. God says, 
Ahaz, I will give you a sign that proves that I'm with you. In fact, go ahead and ask for some crazy big sign, not some dew on fleece sign, something big, over the top. God says, I'm willing to move heaven and earth to demonstrate that I'm your great and glorious ally. That's the offer. Now, what is Ahaz's response? <clears throat> it sounds spiritual, but it's not. We need to study Ahaz's response because one, it's wrong, <laughs> and two, because we can respond like him. Ahaz rejects God's offer by trying to sound spiritual, but Ahaz said, verse 12, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Ahaz quotes Deuteronomy 6.16, but like most heretics, he doesn't quote the whole verse. Here's the whole verse. You ready? You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Don't be like that. You're like, going, oh, what happened at Massa, right? God's people, they were wandering in the wilderness, and the people quarreled and fought among themselves, and they demanded Moses Give us water. Moses wrote at, to summarize that they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Notice this type of testing flows from faithlessness. To put God to the test in this manner is essentially a sin of unbelief. It says, I will not believe unless God so proves himself. But in Ahaz's case, God's, God offers him a sign. He wants him to ask. And listen, the faithful delightfully reply, Yes, Lord, I need a sign. My faith is weak. I believe, but Lord, help my unbelief. So understand this. For Ahaz to refuse the offer of a sign from God is proof that he does not want to believe. And once again, to ask to believe for a sign and to be given one would mean what to Ahaz? That he must now align his life, his plans, everything to the sign giver. He would not say like Isaiah in the chapter that proceeds, here am I, send me. Now, how is it that Christians can day, today can do Something similar. I'm not saying we can do what he did because we do believe. But is it not true that there can be some false piety in us that causes us not to lean on God? Say you have an estranged family member, a brother, parent, maybe a child, and instead of drawing near and asking God to work to bring salvation, right, of the relationship, we false piously, we don't want to bother God with such small matters. But really, think about it, we don't want to bother God because God might get too involved. It might mean that the work he wants to do first is in us. God needs to create a kind, forgiving, turn-the-other-cheek heart in you, but you say no. And you couch it under false piety. I don't want to put God to the test. Surely God has more important things to do. Let's just see how this all falls out in the end. 
I think the other person's going to change and come back. Also, far too many Christians think they're doing God a favor by, by asking him to stay up in heaven and only work on the big things, right? So we don't bother him with our small prayer requests. We can think that to ask God to come down and be our ally and therefore bless us so much in the small things of life, we tell ourselves that this is wrong, right? It's wrong to experience that much blessing from God. It's selfish. It's some prosperity gospel heresy. Or we simply have the false view that God isn't interested in blessing us in every moment of every day. But in this passage, God tells us that he desires to be our ever-present ally in the big and in the little. Christian, can you make room in your head for such truth? God will move heaven and earth for his people so that his glory can come to us. God wants us to live with constant expectation that he will lead us and he will bless us in every moment of every day. But like Ahaz, we know that to have God this close and this personal changes everything about us. God desires to bring glory to our lazy hours, glued to our devices. He desires to be present when online shopping and binge-watching Netflix. And so on the one hand, we delight in this truth that God desires to be our ally and bless us in every second of every day. But on the other hand, our flesh cries out, no. And also, some people skeptically say, I remember before I became a Christian saying this, well, if God would just give me a sign today, then I'd believe, right? I just need a sign, something fresh, something new, something like, you know, uh, something that's been crafted just for me. And so if you're here today and you say you would believe in God if he'd only give you a sign, he will not give you a new sign. He's already given us the sign, his son, Jesus Christ. And also, I feel like i got to cover this just briefly for the Christians here. This does not teach you to start laying out fleeces every day of your life, right? God, should I move to North Carolina? Show me a sign. God, I want to marry this man. Show me a sign. The context of our passage wasn't that God wants Ahaz to ask for signs every time he's in a conundrum. God wanted to give Ahaz a sign that he was present in his life as his great and glorious ally. So Ahaz distrusts the Lord and does not ask for a sign. So God says, guess what? I'm going to give you a sign anyway. And this sign demonstrates that God will triumph over his failures by his grace. And now we come to, uh, it's a, you know, a famous Christmas verse in the Bible. Isaiah 7, 14. It's about a virgin giving birth to a son. We're to call Emmanuel, God with us. Now, most Christmas sermons or Advent sermons, all they do is verse 14. Uh, they don't go on and go through the rest of the passage. So let's read it. 
Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you, Ahaz, and upon your people, upon your father's house, such days have not come since the day that Ephraim, that's the northern kingdom, departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Okay, what's the Lord promising? He's saying there's going to be a young woman, a virgin, who will conceive and have a boy. He shall eat the food of poverty, curds and honey. And before he's old enough to know right and wrong, the kings that Ahaz dreads will be gone. But all is not good. (laughs) There will come a calamity upon Ahaz and upon the people that rivals the time when the northern kingdom rebelled. That was a horrible day. And the kingdom divided. And what will be the cause of the calamity? The king of Assyria. He's coming. Now, you may be thinking, Pastor Mark, I thought this was about baby Jesus. <laughs> Isn't this about baby Jesus? Look at your faces. Yes, it is. But it isn't, right? This prophecy has two fulfillments. Sometimes God's prophecy has two, one near and one long term. One is in Ahaz's day, and the other far greater when Jesus is born. As we know, it speaks of Jesus being the, the one who's born of the virgin. Matthew, of course, makes this quite clear to us. But there's also a fulfillment in Isaiah's day. And since we're studying the book of Isaiah, we're going to look at that. This leads to our last point. Because God is your great and glorious ally, we must seek our refreshment of our souls in him. I'm not going to read the last part of chapter 7. Let me summarize. The Lord describes what will happen. This judgment is coming upon the land at the hand of Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria. Now, what I want us to focus on is the crazy stuff that happens in chapter 8. All right, you guys ready? All right, okay. Uh, Let me read Isaiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. Then the Lord said to me, Take a large tablet and write on it in the common characters belonging to Maher Shalal Has Baz. And I will get a reliable witness, Uriah and the, pri- the priest, and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Maher Shalal Has Baz. For before the boy knows how to cry, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. The Lord spoke again to me, because of this, this people have refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently, remember that spring, and rejoice over Rezin, that's one king, and the son of Remelah, that's the other king. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, that's the Euphrates in uh, Assyria, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings 
will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. God's still with us, O Emmanuel. Listen, God goes to great length to make sure his people know that he is the one behind the calamity. Think about it. When we undergo hardship in life, Scripture calls us to realize that the Lord is in some way teaching us something, disciplining us. As Ray Ortland Jr. writes, God is present in our crisis. If we will trust him, he will save us. If we refuse him, he will discipline us, but he would rather save us. God will discipline you. He has something good to teach you. He wants you to come to him, to turn in newness of faith and resolve and walk with him as your great and glorious ally. Look at what God has Isaiah do. First, he tells them to get a giant placard, this big dry erase board, get a billboard outside of Jerusalem and write upon it belonging to Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. In English, it reads, belonging to speed, spoil, haste booty. Listen, the sign's going to describe what's happening in the land of Syria and Samaria and Judah. The enemy, the king of Assyria, is taking the spoils and the booty of war. And having the sign there tells the people a couple things. Listen, one, God knows this is happening. And two, this is God's doing. Sometimes when there's sin in our lives, we find ourselves sitting in the shameful consequences of it. It is right and good for us to know that God knows this is happening. And it is God's doing. Think about it. See, if we think it's an accident, that we're sitting in the circumstances, then we brush it off, right? And if we think that God couldn't have anything to do with it, we falsely assure ourselves that we're okay with God. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we are wise when we understand that God disciplines those he loves. And instead of brushing it off, we ask God to come near, draw near, and save us. My friends, God uses calamity to press us deeper into the grace of Christ. Now, the Lord has Isaiah do something else that's even more perplexing. In verses 3 and 4, we read Isaiah's words. I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name. Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before this boy knows how to cry my father, my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria is going to be carried away by the king of Assyria. The prophetess is Isaiah's wife. She bore a son. And the Lord told Isaiah to name the son the phrase that's on the billboard. Son. Okay, son. Your name is Speed Spoil Haste booty. You thought a boy named Sue was a bad name. Figured I'd get time to laugh at that one. 
Now, imagine the trauma upon Ahaz's mind when he meets Isaiah's new son. Hi, Ahaz. Uh, Remember meeting my son on the aqueduct? A remnant shall return. Remember meeting him? Well, guess what? Here's my new son. His name is Speed Spoil Haste Booty. His name signifies what will happen to Syria and Samaria. All the wealth of those nations will be carried away. But what will happen to Judah? In verses 5 through 8, Judah's fate is described as a flood that sweeps into Judah. And it's so bad that the inhabitants have to stand on their tippy toes in order to survive. It will be devastating, but there will be a remnant, just as God promised. Oh, Emmanuel. But why does God bring this calamity upon his people? He answers that question at the beginning of verse 6. Listen, why? Because this people have refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently. Instead, they rejoice over resin and the son of Ramilah. They think they're going to save the land. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, and the king of Assyria, and all his glory. And it shall ride over all of its channels, over all its banks, and it will sweep into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, Judah. And then he ends, oh, Emmanuel, God with us. Why did this happen? And what can we learn? God says it's because his people refused the still waters of Shiloh, that God promised Jerusalem at this spring called Gihon. The spring that fed the aqueduct, the very thing that, the very thing that Ahaz is fretting over. He's despising that spring. If I just didn't have this spring, my life would be better. And God's saying, no, that spring symbolizes my relationship with my people. It's a gentle, still spring. It's the water of life that flows to my people. But the people refuse to trust God with the gently flowing water of life that God promised to provide. See, they need not run to any other source or spring, but Ahaz did, and his people fell in line. Do you see that? And so this is the main point of verse 3. Because God is our great and glorious ally, we must seek refreshment of our soul from him. It should not surprise us that this is our application. In Jeremiah, God calls out the sin of his people. Maybe you know this passage when he writes, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. My friends, God's desire is that we don't turn from him, the fountain of living water, and try to provide for ourselves from our own sources of supply. And this is why the good shepherd leads us beside still waters. This is the newness of life that Jesus offered the Samaritan woman at the well when he said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, this well water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. 
the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Listen, if you think you don't want God to be the center of your life because that would mean you no longer are, (laughs) do you see how foolish that is? God desires to satisfy his people. Jesus came so that we would have new life in him and experience the abundant life that is only possible when God is our great and glorious ally. Because God is our great and glorious ally, we must find refreshment of our souls in him. We've seen this morning through the failure of Ahaz that God calls us to draw near to him as our our ally. What a wonderful promise from God that he desires to triumph over all of our failures and grace towards us. God offers himself to us. And the sign we have is the child who was born of the virgin, Emmanuel, God with us. No, not Isaiah's son, but the very son of God. Christmas tells us that God has triumphed over our failure by coming into the midst of our crises so that we may experience salvation, the salvation we long for. And not just the salvation of our souls, my friends, but much more. God makes us a firm body and soul in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, oh, how quick we are to want you in our lives, but not too much. As a pastor, I even confess, that's there in my life. Until the day you return, Jesus, or call us home, we're going to struggle with this. We're going to want you, but not all of you. And so we ask that you'd override our foolish desires. Bring calamity in her life, if that need be, so that we can more trust in you. But we pray you preserve us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.